Welcome to the McCovey Croncast. It's Friday, March 11th, and joining me this week, well, I'm Brian Murphy. Joining me this week is Ruben Poling, who you will recognize from the site. Ruben, welcome. Thank you for joining me this week and for being on the Croncast. How's it going? Thanks, Brian. It's really good to be here. Um, I love talking about baseball, and I love making people listen to me talk about baseball, so this is exactly where I need to be right now. Uh, we have Mike Farron from Sirius XM and the Arizona Diamondbacks pre- and post-game show joining us a little bit later. Um, spring training's in full effect. Um, but I guess right now what I want everyone to know is I'm recording this in a coffee shop because the electricity's out. And Ruben, you're drunk. I'm not drunk. I've okay. been drinking. I wouldn't say I'm drunk. All right. Uh, you know I mean, what I am. Have you, have you watched Master of None? Uh, yes, of course. Yeah, so you're doing the thing. You're doing the audition, right? That's right. I'm doing the audition. Uh, if you make me stand up and scream about a virus, I will not clear the place, though. I am in the secluded loft next to the air conditioning vent, so I'm, I'm all good. <laughs> all right. Just checking. Now, I'm also not as good an actor as uh, Aziz's character on the show, if that makes sense. I'm that bad of an actor. I couldn't yeah. even audition via Skype as a character. I think it's a lot. It takes a lot of talent to do bad acting well, right? Like on that show, he was visibly doing bad acting. That's right. That yeah, it is. It's extremely difficult. Uh, it's, it's a totally different type of acting um, because you have to be convincing in that part too. You can't just be bad. Right. You have to be bad in the context. So, what are you drinking? Um, it's actually extremely classy Trader Joe's bourbon. Uh, I'm I'm at that level right now. Uh, it's it's pretty good. Trader oh, Joe's bourbon is not bad, but you're uh, such class! My God, you are well, Grant here. He was drinking something fancy, right? Like Grant. Grant gets that that head writer bourbon. Grant He's sweats bourbon. bourbon. That's where he he distills it internally, and um, he just sweats it into a cup. <laughs> yeah, I'm on some store brand shit. So, uh. <laughs> uh, so spring training is is in full full effect. And um, and Johnny Cueto, he's he's with the Giants. I I forgot until like this week. Um. The thing still seems weird because my my instinct is still like, oh, he's one of those good pitchers who the Giants will never sign, and then they did. I'm which, still not. Used to it. Which yes, and and today someone was talking about contracts and I think extending Jake Arrieta, and this was on the radio, and I was just thinking, I'm like, man, the Giants have Cueto for two years. There's no such thing as a bad two-year deal. I'm assuming he opts out. He's got to opt out. So. Yeah, like, I, I think that if he if he had his arm severed in, like, a horrible rake accident at spring training, there's a, even odds that he would spend the next two years uh, learning to pitch left-handed rather than um, <laughs> stay in the contract. That's like, right. It's uh, just I think much money for free agents. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> The opt-out is obviously player-friendly just in terms of leverage, but functionally it's a win for both sides. I think so, and we're going to get two years. I don't think we'll tire of his Instagram in two years. I uh, feel like that third year is where the Instagram starts to become tiring. Um, yeah, got yeah. peak Instagram years. That's right. Really That's right. We might be getting some prime Instagram and prime pitching years from Johnny Cueto, but in his debut with the Giants – he pitched one and a third innings, uh, and he gave up five runs on four hits, which to me means absolutely nothing. It just doesn't it doesn't even register with me. 
<laughs> like, personally, he was out there pitching baseballs to hitters actually trying to do something with them. And he hadn't done that for months. Like, he was probably on the mound 50% trying to remember how to hold a baseball and 50% thinking about, like, you know... <laughs> <laughs> but I thought the parents are a little more expensive, but they're going to look great on Instagram when I post that. <laughs> you just struck a nerve with me because the idea of him forgetting how to hold a baseball, I think many people can relate to this idea of if you work an office job or something, oh. when you go home, you don't remember the job. Like if, if, I, if I'm off for a week or two and I go back to the office, it takes me a minute to remember how to do the things I've been doing regularly and so i like right. the idea that it's just a job to johnny cueto and he has to come back and it's like i forgot how to pitch where who am i throwing it to oh him that's right yeah. <laughs> i'm a software tester by day and i got home and within an hour it took me like 20 minutes to remember how to get on skype like i just completely <laughs> forgot how many uh do i plug it into the wall is it i don't yeah i don't know but uh you know he said he was working on things and i like the idea that he has to sort of because all of his pitches are so wildly different. He's like a video yeah. game character in a lot of ways, in that you know you have to enter different combinations to get the right moves, and he has to re like regain that muscle memory. Like this is how I throw my crazy slider, or this is how yeah. I throw this fastball, and he has to kind of yeah. remember each pitch. It's the fastball thing that gets me because if you watch a Johnny, like if you're, you know, you don't have access, you don't have headphones, you're not on by a screen, you're just looking at game day. A Johnny Cueto start is just like a guy throwing fastballs over and over. It's like Bartolo <laughs> Colon out there. But he has so many different, like with the the wiggle and the quick pitch and like all the different pacing things he does and then different velocities and spins on the fastball. It's, you're right. He's, he's a guy who just has a million different ways to attack. So it makes sense to me um, as a very optimistic Giants fan that it's going to take him a while to get warmed up. Yeah, I just don't, I mean, I, I think he's really cool. I really thought Dusty Baker was going to blow out his arm in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. So I was glad when he survived those days. And then I just don't, I have no idea why. And I, I'm wrong as often as I'm right or whatever, just in terms of, uh, when people talk about players or you prognosticate, but it just doesn't, you know, the, the national media is like, oh, he wasn't very good when he went over to the Royals. That's a cause for concern. And yes, his ERA went up almost the full run. <laughs> he went up, or like literally raised the season ERA a full run when he was traded. Uh, but I just am not, I don't care. It's kind of like, it's half the season. He won a World Series. He pitched well when they absolutely needed him to. And... What's that? Didn't he throw a complete game in the World yeah, Series? Yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying, yes, he had starts where, when he was traded to the Royals. I'm looking at it now. So his first two starts, third, or, excuse me, his first three, four starts. I'm going to cherry pick here. His first four starts as a Royal, he uh, was two and two, but he pitched 30 innings, 21 strikeouts, gave up six runs. That's really good. Okay, that's yeah. good. So then, then he has two... He has three, four, five bad starts in a row. And then really the rest of the season, then, then the next five starts were four starts were good. And then the playoffs were the playoffs. I don't know. To me, it just seems like the guys pitching in August and September in, in uh, I don't know, the American League, a new league, and uh, in the Midwest where it's, it's even warmer. I mean, he's pitching in Ohio before, but I mean, 
He's pitching in Baltimore. He's pitching in places he wouldn't necessarily be pitching in. Again, new team, new catcher, whatever. I don't care. It just doesn't – it just seems like there are so many other ways of explaining why he didn't pitch as well as he had um, other than, it, like, he's done, which is what people were saying. Yeah. <laughs> record of being an incredible pitcher who occasionally misses time but just like even his injury history is not that big he's had like one year that was wiped out and then a couple like twinges at the worst possible time but yeah he there doesn't seem to be any more to johnny cueto's struggles and injuries than like well you know he's a pitcher yeah <laughs> being a pitcher is really hard yeah. uh, so when we're talking about injury, this is how I segue, Ruben. Get used to it, man. Um, you know, Brandon Belt's back, and he got hit with a pitch oh my God, he on his back. first game back. <laughs> and, you know, Brent, uh, Grant, as Grant wrote on the site the other day, and twice this week, uh, actually three times this week, Grant ha- and I have had the same idea. And after the first time, I just was like, okay, I'm going to be very careful with pitch stuff. But one of them was writing about Brandon Belt. Now, Grant did the usual, like, let's project as 2016. But what I wanted to write about was, um, I really think Brandon Belt, this has to be the year for him. And I don't mean it, I, I mean, I think the Giants need him this year. I should say it that way. That we say that every year, but I would say that this is like the year that the Giants need him to hit 25 home runs and be a prototypical first baseman. Because the lineup to me seems like it's going to be fine, but if it isn't, if he is what they, you know, what I just said they need him to be, then it won't matter. You know, if Duffy and Panic's back never returns to form or is a problem the whole season, and Brandon Crawford is basically Brandon Crawford as he's always been, uh, and then the outfield situation can get messy because there's no power there. I think it's really just. Belt's got to have that on-base and power. That's going to smooth over a lot of the other rough edges that might crop up. Yeah, you know, I think the thing, a, a big part of the um, the frustration with Brandon Belt, besides the um, silly, you know, slumpy shoulders, right. taking walks and striking out looking stuff, besides all the uh, sideshow shit, is that he's just, he is not a traditional First base, like he's a first baseman who gets on base a lot and hits for power, but not in the ways that you expect of him. Right. Like, yeah. He takes a lot of walks, and he also he hits for a reasonably high average, but not great. Uh, he hits for he has really good power, but it's mostly hitting doubles all the time. Like he still hasn't hit twenty homers in a season, and that's fine. Like that's just who he is. But there's also that level of like you know looking around the league. I mean even just in the division, Adrian Gonzalez at this point is not as good a first baseman as Brandon Belt. That's my first hot take of the night. Brandon Belt is better than Adrian Gonzalez. Oh my like, God. I, I got to get butter for this burn. That is hot. Yeah. He's just, yeah. I'm, Gonzalez, but like, that's exactly it. Gonzalez, you know, he's an okay fielder. He doesn't actually have that much power. He runs like a, um, if you ever watch, I imagine that the neural scouting is like a clockwork orange situation though, where they just, keep their eyelids open and then they like shoot images at them and then measure their responses to that. Here's Randy Johnson throwing a fastball at your head. What do you do? That kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So the other thing that was kind of big news to me this week, um, Giants related was uh, pace of play. Uh, Forbes released an article about uh, pace of play and who were the biggest offenders 
Um, and they talk in the article. They talk a little. bit. I wrote about this on the site. I'm not just pimping my own stuff, but hey, uh, the Giants actually play quick games, which I yeah. am totally surprised by. Me too. I I think it's just. I mean, this is not a dig at baseball. Baseball does what it does, and it does it perfectly. It's it's a slow sport. Like there are long games, and I don't even want to say it's a. No, it's a slow sport. It's a language sport. It's it's a well-paced sport, and that is just sort of this even pace of stuff kind of gradually happening um so it's easy to be like oh my you know when you're not in the mood for a long game it's easy to be oh my team is so slow because of course they are they're a baseball team mm-hmm. but give the baseball apparently the giants aren't and you're right that was news to me yeah and i i just figured with all the pitching changes and how terrible they were last year that that would be pitching wise that they would be much higher on that list but um it was because when i was doing that article i counted and i forgot that there were Giants had two or three times where they used 11 pitchers or something. They had a bunch where they used nine or eight, and certainly many. The average was what I said was like 3.8 or 4.3 or something like that. Uh, So the Giants, you know, to me it just seems like if you didn't look at the numbers and you said we need to minimize pitching changes, I would say that the Giants would have to be one of the first teams that leaped to mind in that regard. And yet it didn't really measurably impact their time of games. It was only when they went to Coors or Arizona where it all went to shit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that that people, it almost seems too simple to matter, but, like, the thing that makes a baseball game take longer is not getting guys out. More than anything else, you know, pitching changes, uh, even pitcher, you know, who is it, David Price, who takes, like, six minutes between pitches or whatever. I think like, it's six and a half now. As he's gotten older, it's, yeah, it's gotten yeah. older. Oh, Sox, man. <laughs> uh, Sox, man. But, um, yeah, if you want a game to be over faster, uh, get guys out. And the Giants weren't, by metrics, the best at getting guys out. But thanks to AT&T Park, you know, what would have been a double that extended the inning was instead a fly out. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. what. To me, I don't know what an ideal length of a baseball game is but whatever it is it's going to be you know at, at least an hour is going to be tacked on to it with commercials yeah. so if you think yeah. a baseball game should take two hours a nine inning game well that's still a three-hour broadcast because they're going to add on everything which is what we have now we have a three-hour broadcast <laughs> and it's not gonna it's not like shortening that in some way isn't going to make people want to watch it more exactly exactly yeah just take the game you have make it more accessible to people if that's and I think part of that is making it more fun, right? Right. <laughs> so I segued it right into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that was a good segue. That's an interesting uh, topic. So, you know, Bryce Harper was uh, very vocal the other day about baseball being more fun, <laughs> uh, basically, that it's a tired sport. And the Giants' own Sergio Romo, um, in his way, I'm not surprised by how he interprets that as it being some sort of dig at baseball uh, in the sport, uh, as opposed to what Bryce Harper was really saying, which is that why are we basically people play with passion and fire and a lot of, and the majority of baseball wants to take dirt and dump it on that fire. Uh, That was the gist of it. And Sergio Romo took it as you don't like baseball. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's fair or not. He frequently comes off as a jackass, but so does like any really successful athlete who gets a bunch shoved in the And he's probably like for you know, for all I know, he like walks around the clubhouse like 
singing the same two lines of a Smash Mouth song over and over. Like there was that bit. There's last no year. way he even knows what Smash Mouth is. God, what, what is what's the equivalent of Smash Mouth for guys who were born in like 1998 or whatever? Hold on, caveat: he might know Smash Mouth from the Shrek soundtrack. <laughs> he may have seen Shrek as a kid. <laughs> that seems logical. Eat another drink. <laughs> Which means his in to Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy could be Shrek. That's entirely that, like, lo- possible. The donkey and the ogre. Like nothing about <laughs> SNL. Like nope. not like trading like Not even Austin Powers. Like that's right. He and he's like, wait a minute. Donkey was a stand-up comedian. <laughs> One thing that I like that this sets up the whole Romo his comments is the possibility of a beef between Sergio Romo and Bryce Harper going into 2016 and it's a good beef because there's no way Sergio Romo will ever face Bryce Harper in 2016 oh absolutely (laughs) Bochi doesn't care like if Bochi became aware of it he would just like laugh and forget about it within five minutes. He's in the business of winning baseball games. That's like, right. Yeah. And the but, idea but, of throwing Sergio Romo against a left-handed hitter, even a pitcher who's left-handed at this point, is like, there's no, no, it's not happening. Yeah. And not the the best hitter in the game. So really, this beef is just like Bryce Harper standing in the on-deck circle watching Romo <laughs> to whoever the hell else is on after the holes. <laughs> well, Javier Lopez warms up just like, oh. One of these days, I'm going to get him. <laughs> but you're right. Like, I'm way more invested in the idea of, a, of, of like, a pro wrestling style beef between these guys than I am in whatever abstract principles of baseball. Like, to me, that's, that's a good color to have to the game. <laughs> because the thing about wrestling, pro wrestling, is that the, the beefs are intense. And depending on when you're watching, maybe the language... Maybe the imagery can get a little, you know, not suitable for all ages. But the idea of it is that a six-year-old and a 16-year-old can enjoy it equally just by what's going on. Um, and that's what's great about it. So there needs to be some baseball beefs in that spirit. Not yeah. like not like Roger Clemens where it's like, the steroids have made me angry and I have to kill you. <laughs> no, yeah, like some, I don't know, was it like, like some Matt Latos stuff, you know? Yes, Matt Latos. That was good. That was just plain good villainy. But what there was, it was. But it was basically like the other side of that was Dave Fleming. You know what I mean? There needs to be something better, more colorful than that. Right. I think it should be the twenty. It should be the star of a team. And then if like Bryce Harper, let's say he pisses off, um, I don't know, he pisses off the Braves this year. The twenty-fifth man on the roster of the Braves needs to be the one to pick up the mantle. Of talking yeah. garbage because that's the fun. <laughs> that's what he's good for. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. So I, I, I do. Um, I don't know. I don't know how many heat checks I need to fire off on this. Um, I do think the Romo thing is, you know, from a baseball Twitter perspective, is a little funny because it really screws with, you know, with all of the fun baseball versus crusty old baseball thing that we like to address where the instinct is to split it into two camps and on one of them is like loud exuberant enjoyable fun young players and on the other side is like crusty grubby strict obnoxious players 
who are also a little racist. And that doesn't work. Like, you know, for what I mean, from the get go, that's a very simplified narrative. And it also really doesn't work in this case. And I kind of appreciate that. But like, <laughs> you, you can't really do that with Sergio Romo. Um, he's, in fact, a, a very loud and proud spokesman for, you know, Latin American uh, immigrants. So, um, but I, the reason why I don't think that the racism aspect of it necessarily car- carries over in every instance um it's just because i feel like it's more it's the tyranny of tradition right. the, a lot in a lot of ways and and of course racism is is baked into a lot of traditions like a surprising number of traditions oh, yeah. when you break it down even in language and phrases that you wouldn't think that you could usually figure out that it comes from some sort of racist thing who knows base on balls could be something really racist that we haven't figured out yet yeah that was for a yeah and i mean and i think it's you know it's cool that people and cool and important that people are confronting that and examining that but i also think that any i mean this isn't this isn't specific to examining you know culture clash and baseball anything is easy to distill into a simple two sides narrative if that's what you want to do yeah today Um, though i today i pitched because i was listening to I should say yesterday because we're definitely doing this live, uh, but I was mentioning that I think from the sounds of it, it just sounds like you know we can bring in racism, which is a very uncomfortable subject for everybody uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but another thing that's also maybe uncomfortable for some, but certainly less than for racism, is the idea of of masculinity being so fragile. And yeah. I think I think even even guys of all shades, um, in terms or degrees of self awareness, uh, have an, a notion of this idea that our egos are very sensitive. And I think with athletes, I, I get it, but at the same time, I also feel like you know you can't really control how other people behave, but you one hundred percent can control how you respond. To things and yes. if you don't want a certain outcome you are literally training every day of your life to make sure certain things don't happen if you don't want Yasiel Puig getting a home run off of you then make sure he that you get him out really yeah. that's the outlet you're going yeah. for like, I mean yeah absolutely at the end of the day if you don't want Bryce Harper like flipping his bat and then giving an interview about it then strike him out and I think sort of lost in the um, the noise of the the money quote, the you know the get a different job quote that Romo had was um, what I thought was a good point that like Harper. I mean, there were good points on both sides. Harper was like, you know, Steph Curry, LeBron James, Cam Newton, like dudes are out there clearly having fun um, and you know making millions and millions of dollars for everyone involved. Um, and Romo's comeback is like, this is baseball, dude, like not basketball or football. And he's right. And there are things that baseball could maybe stand to learn, could stand to adopt. And there are things it's never going to adopt. And I think that's cool. Like, I think having a part of, you know, that languid pace of the game that we were talking about earlier, part of that sort of aesthetic to it is just being a little, a little chiller. And in that way, when, you know, Jose Bautista obliterates a baseball and, like, throws his bat, I mean, that was the greatest bat flip ever, right? We're, we're agreed on that? Like, nothing is uh, ever- 
I would say it probably is, but I I have a hard time putting it over Cespedes's bat flip in the home run derby. Ooh, that's true. Yeah, but I mean, but it's an in game. Given the situation, I at least say they're at least equal. But yeah, I would say it's the greatest in game bat flip in Major League history. Yeah. So, yeah, like having – there needs to be some contrast. Like that that matters because, you know, Jose Bautista what, didn't flip his bat like that after, you know, a seventh-inning home run in August or whatever. Um, and I think that's where this weird argument starts to come in. I mean, Romo – here's a quote from Romo from the article – and that is, I don't agree that being able to put your hands up when you hit a 500-foot home run or punching somebody out and then staring them down. I'm sorry, it doesn't add flair to the game. That's showing up the other guy. I don't know. If you hit a 500-foot home run, that is showing up the other guy because he threw such a bad pitch that you you did 100% baseball on it. Like, like you yeah. took everything that you could do and you destroyed it. Uh, you hit a, a 500 foot home run you can do whatever you want with your bat because i am scared of you I am that's, right. that's right and and so i mean i i guess if i mean if i'm teammates with romo i'm like yeah i get your point you're right man but here's the weird part of him saying that there are definitely baseball players who have been bent out of shape by the way romo pumps his fist when he gets out of a jam or ends an inning or ended a game like, there yeah. are people that just didn't like the way he celebrated saves. That was a big point of contention for a long time, remember? Just how closers celebrate getting saves. That was a, that was showing people up somehow. You know, um, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. The bow and arrow. Um, Fernando Rodney. Fernando Rod- Rodney. That would tick people off. And it's just <laughs> like, so they're basically baseball players are are very sensitive. Yes. And they're probably the most sensitive out of all the sports. I well, would say they're most sensitive to that sort of in-game thing. Like, yeah. And I think, yeah, essentially that's what it distills down to is not that Sergio Romo or anyone really has a specific set of guidelines as to how much celebration is too much and how much is acceptable. What they're really saying is I don't like you, the guy who's celebrating. I don't like that specific thing. And I need to justify it to myself where what he could actually could have and should have said was, you know, Bryce Harper sucks. Screw <laughs> Bryce Harper. I hate that guy. One more quote that I think is is really worth piling on Romo about is he goes, uh, the game is bigger than you are. These rules were set well before you arrived. Sorry, there's not one person who's going to change this game. There's not one person who has that power. <laughs> and, and I can't wait till Jackie Robinson Day. I know it's a different thing, but just the idea yeah, that yeah. you could say, like, no one's powerful enough to change. Not one person can change the game of baseball. That's just yeah, like a silly what? statement. <laughs> maybe maybe it got cut off. Like what Robo was actually saying was like, no one person can change the game of baseball. It's going to take all of us collectively together. <laughs> Feel the burn, Bryce. <laughs> Uh, that that's see. I would be very interested to know who any of the baseball players are going to vote for, and I would, I, I wonder what voter turnout is with Major League Baseball players. It's probably like below twenty five percent. That's my guess. That like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, for every the, it always makes um headlines whenever the latest like, you know, ex player jackass says they're going to vote for Donald Trump. Um, 
good job, ex Yankees, I guess. Um, but yeah, like for every guy who's, you know, a Kurt Schilling or a Johnny Damon, yeah, you're right. There's like four or five guys who are like, I, I don't vote because literally none of this will have any impact on my life. Right. Or it's like, I'm too busy, man. Or like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't follow the issues. And, but I just can't see Derek Jeter, like going into a voting booth, and <laughs> punching a card or, <laughs> or even doing a mail-in ballot. Like I can't imagine these guys, I can't imagine any of these guys having home offices. Yeah. I mean, and I'm the other the other side of the coin is that baseball players, like the the ones who are good at this, have rich and complicated and fulfilling personal lives that we never get to see. Like, there is probably a player who is like a committed like foreign policy expert who has like all these deep thoughts that we don't know anything about because that's not his job, and he is never going to talk about that where anyone like any any media can hear it. I don't think you're wrong about that. I just would say it seems like baseball has, you know, being around so long, it seems like some of that would have leaked out a little bit. Like every now and again, Mariano Rivera, great classical guitarist, or was that Bernie Williams? Um, you know, stuff like that will leak out, but it's not like you see these guys leaving their careers and then at age 38 or 40, like, you know, selling a screenplay or directing a movie or, you know, it's, it's very rare that they are like, it's very rare that they even run for political office and, and almost always in those cases, it's just born on the backs of like, I was famous and I am in a crappy district where that, that's all that matters. You know, that kind of stuff. It's very rare where it's like, I think it's cause they're playing the sport their entire lives. That's yeah. what their entire brain was committed to. Um, and I'm interested to see if that changes now that like, that's a great point. Uh, like Bryce Harper in 20 years is so uh, is inspired by Game of Thrones that he becomes like a top fantasy writer after he retires. How awesome yes. would that be? <laughs> that would be pretty cool. No, and I, I, I also think just in general, not just specific players, but the, the prevalence of um, just, you know, the information age or whatever we're calling it now of, of, of the Internet, of stuff being at your fingertips. So that even if you are focused, you know, 365 days a year on either playing baseball or getting ready to play baseball again, you can still check your Twitter and be like, oh, huh, there's a debate going on. Yeah, uh, I'm actually really interested to see what Andrew McCutcheon's post-baseball career is. He seems like a really interesting guy, well, yeah, more, than, more uh, than most baseball players. Yeah, he has a great um, – he's very socially conscious. He has a – he's a fantastic artist. Like, he's a portrait painter. Um no, Andrew McCutcheon is is you're right. Of I am now also fascinated. Of all <laughs> different players, Andrew McCutcheon is the one who I most want to check in with in 15 years. Now it's time to get to know your foe. And this week we're going to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks. Okay, joining us now from Sirius XM's MLB Network Radio is Mike Farron. Mike Farron is uh, one of my – he's the only reason why I have an XM subscription. If you're interested in satellite radio and you like baseball, you should get it just for him. He owes Power Alley in the morning. But this year he is also the uh, new po- pregame and postgame host uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks, which is why he's joining us for the Know Your Foe segment. Welcome, Mike Farron, to the show. Hi, guys. It's a real pleasure to be with you. You know, I'm a longtime fan of McCovey Chronicles. Not your work specifically, but the entire genre of the site. But. Well, uh, <laughs> it's a great site with quality content every day. Uh, 
So uh, basically, Mike, uh, Diamondbacks, you know, Ruben, you got the big question for Mike. Yeah. Um, so the Diamondbacks, as a Giants fan, the Diamondbacks completely screwed up our whole season. Um, I remember, like, checking my phone frantically on the bus during that period. The, uh, it seemed like Zach Granke was going to either the Giants or the Dodgers, and then a mystery swooped in. So we all know about Granke. Um, my question is, who... As someone who doesn't follow the Diamondbacks that closely, uh, who on that team should the rest of us be worried about? Who is the Diamondbacks' secret weapon, the roster, or the farm system? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, first and foremost, I'm sure you probably remember the Paul Goldschmidt's ownership of Tim Lincecum over the last yeah. couple of years. So, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, I mean, he's the guy to worry about. I mean, this is, I think he's underappreciated personally. Um, you know, even with the fact that he's going to be in national TV ads and, you know, he's finally starting to get some of the recognition and he's you know, twice in the last three years been the runner up for the National League MVP award. Um, I'm still not sure that everybody really knows who Paul Goldschmidt is, but um, he's pretty terrific. I mean, he's basically he's the Joey Votto of the mountain time zone and. <laughs> And, and with more RBIs, though, so I guess that makes people happier, right? So, um, you know, he's he's really an exceptional talent. So I think first and foremost, I think he's the guy that that you should be most worried about. But beyond that, this is a really good team. I mean, AJ Pollock um, had a breakout season last year at, at 27, and and really, you know, he started to break out the year before, um, and then and had suffered an injury in the middle of the year, and so only played a half season. But he's a terrific two-way player. He's a good defender in center field and an offensive force. And then David Peralta is probably the best player that nobody knows about. He was sixth in the National League in slugging percentage last year. It's a great story. He was actually a pitcher in the Cardinals system, hurt his shoulder, was released, sat out for two years, started playing independent ball in Venezuela. I didn't even know there was an independent league in Venezuela until I heard David Peralta's story. And he started hitting there, then started playing indie ball in the States. Diamondback signed him, and after not even a calendar year in the minor leagues, he made it to the big leagues, and now is you're basically going to be their number four, number five hitter in the lineup. Um, so I'd say that those are the, the, the kind of the three main guys that are going to carry the offense. And then from the pitching side, obviously, Grinke and then Shelby Miller uh, and Patrick Corbin are, are, are kind of the, the anchors of that rotation, and I think all three of them are pretty good. I think it's possible he made up the existence of this Venezuelan league. That's not impossible <laughs> to imagine with the right it, set of papers. Maybe someone like stitched together a fake uniform or a hat. You don't know, but it's possible. <laughs> hey, listen, all I know is that whatever he did, it's worked. So Sure. So, but what's Goldschmidt going to do without Tim Lincecum to beat around? <laughs> You know, he's still pretty good. It was really incredible, the level of ownership, right? Like, if you go through those lists, I know that... I did you know, the numbers, Mike. If you subtract, he is a 250 hitter with 20 career home runs. Uh, if you subtract <laughs> all of his numbers against Lincecum. Yeah, this, this whole thing about Tim Lincecum trying out the secret kitchen lair, it's possible that he's just in Paul Goldschmidt's basement. Just like... <laughs> <laughs> Like Paul Goldschmidt is like, you know, Goldschmidt is like this stand-up guy in the community and like donates tons of time to the children's hospital and all that. Are you saying his dark side is that he's holding Tim Lincecum hostage to play, to, to have him throw batting practice? I think that's the, yes, that's the, the trade, the trade-off, the karmic trade-off. 
Can, can we talk about this for a second? That Tim Lincecum <laughs> is is pitching in an undisclosed location, and that the Royals found him and were escorted out. Like, is that not one? Is that not hilarious? Two? Is that not the most John Heyman story that John Heyman has ever broken? Like, it just I looked at that and I'm like, how do you end up with that information? That's wonderful. <laughs> well, I tend to think that Heyman got the information by accident. Like, I think he was, like, wandering around, maybe chomping on an RV sandwich somewhere. And, like, he just wandered somewhere he'd never been before, and he just saw this whole exchange go down. <laughs> right. He just, he, he just wanders down a side street, and he sees more getting thrown into the gutter. It's like, what's going on over there? Oh, like, it's not like there's that many hidden places in the valley here. I'm not sure where he would be that's just so clandestine. Behind- Behind an Arby's. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> Tim Lincecum working out behind a dumpster. Maybe Tim Lincecum is working, working at Arby's, and that's how John got the story. That's right. Uh, I mean, that's it's like a really great baseball story, too, and it's why spring training is so great. You can get all these random things. I tend to think that that means that the Royal Scouting Department is really damn good at their job, to be honest. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, like, that was the other takeaway from it, right? It's like they found Tim Lincecum when no one else could. That's right. Like, that's that's like the Diamondbacks finding David Peralta, right? It's like that's they right. found Tim. Only better because, like, the guy's a two-time Cy Young Award that's winner right. who's gone fallen off the face of the map, and yet the Royals found him. That's right. He's just out back of an RV pitching and like, where is all the Like, oh my God. Um, I like the idea of Tim Lincecum eating at Arby's too, like with John Heyman. Oh, for sure. It's great. It's great. It's great visual, great optics there. But maybe, maybe they were able to find him, Lincecum, the Royals, in the same way they were able to find whatever they saw in Ian Kennedy this offseason. Ha ha, tie in there. Um, to, just don't you get the sense though that the Royals are kind of like the Cardinals in that Ian Kennedy's gonna, you know, I, I know that we're saber friendly on this podcast, so this won't make much sense to most people, but he's gonna win like 15 games, right? Like oh, he's sure. gonna go 15 and six and post like a 330 ERA, and like they're gonna win the World Series again with Ian Kennedy being the, this year's Edinson Volquez. <laughs> I, I think that's entirely possible. I, it's so strange how winning just transforms. Not just the organization's mindset, but public perception, media perception. Now we look at the Royals and we go, they know what's going on. Go dial it back four years, and you're like, the Royals don't know how to spell their own name. And, well, just, I mean, it was such a mistake to trade Will Myers for James Shields. So. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out at all. Oh, what was that, Ruben? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Last time you heard the good Ned Yoss bunting joke, that was like every week. And now he's, now he's a world champion. So did you hear this latest on, on, on I, I know we've gotten completely off the rails here. That's but, totally but, fine. That's what we do here. But Ned Yost is awesome, right? Like we've, we've like, I think people have begun to learn that Ned Yost is actually just like terrific, right? And he's this incredible character and personality. And so Ned um, is, a, is a hunter and a conservationist, you know, like, like he hunts deer on his property because he says it's overpopulated. And last year, when there was a bee infestation, I think the Royals were playing the Diamondbacks. That's great. He got very yeah. upset when they killed the bees, and so, like, he was very angry about it because it, I, I don't know if you you know this, but there's a shortage now of bees in the world. Bees are being killed. Colony collapse syndrome. Yeah. 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 And so, so Ned was very upset about this. So they had a bee infestation in Surprise the other day, 
And Ned was adamant that they needed to save the bees. And there just happened to be a beekeeper in the stands. Like, like it, it's just like, it's, I, I, I likened it this morning when we were telling the story with Rustin Dodd from the Kansas City Star, who, who you know, wrote the story, that it, it's like the scene in Airplane where, like, <laughs> like, all of a sudden, Leslie Nielsen shows up as the doctor, right? He's like, ah, oh, yes, I had the lasagna. Like, there's a beekeeper that happens to be in the stands to save all the bees in surprise. To Unbelievable. F- to finish that Airplane joke, though, the beekeeper would have to be in the beekeeper's suit when they asked. <laughs> Which, God, I hope that happened. With forceps and everything, right, yeah. Um, well, okay, so, I mean, we're talking about the Royals and, uh, you know, but the, to tie into the Diamondbacks uh, a little bit is, so when I look at the Diamondbacks, to me their strength is a top-heavy starting rotation, and I would say that they've done, they've made moves to bolster that bullpen, but I would say unlike the Royals, which is their strength, the bullpen seems to be the bigger question. And earlier in the week they released the, or, you know, Forbes did that analysis of pace of play. And if you played against the Diamondbacks, those were long games because the pitching was not great and there were a lot of changes. And I'm wondering just from where you're sitting, if you feel like the bullpen might turn a corner this year. Yeah, well, so I think that they're built a little bit more conventionally. Like, I mean, there are certainly several teams that are trying to do something similar to what the Royals are doing, right? Heck, even down to the Rockies, right? Build a strong bullpen and use that to try and make up for a, uh, a rotation that may not be as strong. Um, I look at the Diamondbacks as being more conventionally built in that you're looking at a rotation because, you know, Grinky obviously is a headliner. Shelby Miller was really good last year for the, I mean, really good for the Braves. If you go back and watch his starts, it's pretty impressive. And I think he's got a chance to be over the next three years. I mean, like a perennial all-star. I don't, I don't, and you know, Brian, I don't, I don't, I don't, get hyperbolic very much. And I certainly am not just wearing Sedona red colored glasses in this. I just think he really turned a corner last year because this guy was an elite level prospect. Um, So you've got those two guys. Pat Corbin is really pretty good. And then beyond it, you have, you know, Ruby De La Rosa, I know he had his inconsistencies, but gave him 200 innings last year. And Robbie Ray is only 24. And there aren't a whole lot of lefties to throw 95 at his first two starts. He's featured a new slider, uh, a tighter slider wider than he had. I think he's been, my understanding is Randy Johnson's really taken a shine to him. Um, and the two of them have talked a lot and he, he's got a chance to, to be better certainly than he was last year. And he was pretty good. So I think part of the, their success is going to be based more on, on not getting a ton of innings out of the bullpen, not leading the league in, in bullpen innings this year. And it's going to be because the rotation is going to have to fill, you know, fill the vast majority of, of the innings. And, you know, again, that's more of a traditional fit, but I think it's the one that kind of makes the most sense. And, and you know, they've got a pretty good closer, despite the fact that he's not conventional. I mean, Brad Ziegler has done the job extremely well. And, you know, it, it's almost I, I can't believe that nobody else has made this comparison, but it's almost like the that we've forgotten about Dan Quisenberry and Kent DeColvey. And these guys that yeah, yeah. <laughs> that were like really effective submariners pitching yeah. the ninth and and that well they they were pitching the seventh eighth and ninth for the most part but right. but I, I mean I think Ziegler has has kind of become that guy um, so you know it's it's not the best bullpen Tyler Clippert hopefully helps it some Daniel Hudson threw really hard last year Andrew Chafin had a good season so I think that there are some pieces in place but I think it's going to be more about limiting the innings from the pen and getting them more out of the starting rotation and I think they're certainly capable of that with the talent they have in that group sure but 
one more thing about the talent, because I remember this, very rare that you take such a strong stance on certain issues, and I remember that when they traded Tukiki Toussaint, that you flipped out, and I believe, I believe you destroyed like several thousand dollars worth of equipment at Sirius. Uh, you just, I think you lit a booth on fire, yeah. and, uh, and you punched Bowden in the face, too, but... Maybe that was for something else. I wasn't I very yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I, was, I wasn't very nice that day. So now that you're working for this team, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, does anyone remember that? Is this the only record of that? It, you know, it hasn't come up um, in conversation, <laughs> but thanks for reminding everyone, Brian. I appreciate that. Now, you know, so, so yeah, obviously I wasn't a huge fan of the deal. And I'm sure that there are going to be other deals that happen that I'm not going to be, you know, that I'm not going to be all that enamored with. I mean, that's going to be part of the price of, of playing poker and yeah you know, listen if there's something that's really bad i'm still gonna have to mention it i think that's part of you know, credibility and i think you have to have credibility with fans in that too even with the diamondbacks fans I, and to be honest i don't know how i'm going to handle that or how the organization is going to handle that if and when that moment comes um we'll we'll just have to wait and see it'll be kind of like our own little oh let's watch yeah, um, well, get your what... popcorn ready right but <laughs> but but so okay so but so let me give the explanation at least though for, because that's the other thing is, while I may not agree with moves, I do think that it's important to understand why moves were made. And much like the trade that with the, the Brewers, where Asan Diaz was included in the trade with Aaron Hill in order to get Gene Segura and Tyler Wagner, um, one of the big reasons was that they needed to clear money in order to be competitive now. And that was the same case last year, is that those $10 million saved from Bronson Arroyo, in a weird way, and it it may seem odd because it was last season, but that helped them be able to get Zach Greinke. It helped them be able to make the moves that they made this winter. The same can be said for the move more directly with Aaron Hill and including Isan Diaz in that trade. That move, that trade, freed up enough money that they could sign Tyler Clippard to help their bullpen. So it's a mid-market team. I know it's got get a big TV contract, but they really do operate like a small business. And I think that that's part of the reason. Now, the Braves did something similar, um, you know, in kind of purchasing prospects with the Padres last year you know, when they, they included, you know, Melvin Upton in the deal uh, with Craig Kimbrell. Um, it's not an ideal comp, but it is kind of similar in that there are other teams that have kind of done that with the prospects and being able to, you know, taking on the big money back. Um, but to me, it's, you know, it's one of the kind of the realities that they've been faced with. And in the end, the goal is to win every year. And I think that that's one of the things that stands out kind of indifference in this organization is that, you know, and a part of it's because it's Tony LaRusso and Dave Stewart in a lot of respects is, you know, they expect to compete every single season. And the idea that the window is open just for one year is kind of false. The, the youngest regular is Wellington Castillo at 29. The guys that are contributors that are over the age of 30 are Brad Ziegler at 36, Zach Greinke at 32, Josh Colmenter at 31, Tuffy, Tuffy Ghostwitch, who may not even make the roster, as the backup catcher at 31. This is a very young core, and they feel like the, that the window is just opening for them to be competitive year in and year out. And they really value that competition and the chance to win every year. I think that's so. similar to the Giants. Uh, last question, and, and you're you're kind of getting into what Ruben and I were talking about, and that is that the 
you know, sort of the public perception of the of the Diamondbacks versus, you know, last year even versus this year. Uh, Ruben, maybe you can touch on that with your question. Oh, yeah, we were It's interesting to bring up uh, Tony LaRusa, Dave Stewart. There's sort of, you know, a new regime with the Diamondbacks. And for a few years ago, um, at least in the, uh, the circles of baseball Twitter, there's been this perception of the, you know, the grit backs if the Diamondbacks get mad at the Dodgers for jumping in their pool and throwing at guys. And a lot of it's just, you know, easy Twitter jokes. But there's definitely been a perception that they're this, you know, tougher kind of, well, frankly, grittier team. And I'm curious how you see, you know, versus reality and also versus uh, three or four years ago as compared to now. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it's a good question. And I think, you know, I think that they are – I think it's an organization that is different than other teams. I think that the things that they value or, or the, the way that they want to go about their business isn't necessarily the same as some of um, the teams that are more analytic minded. Um, you know, I, I think winning the world series is the ultimate goal for every team, right? But everybody goes about it different ways. And some teams it's like the only thing. And there's some teams that, want to be competitive every year, knowing that the playoffs are in a lot of respects are a crapshoot. And, and that, you know, if you get there, great, then it means you have a chance to win the world series. Uh, whereas there are some teams that are consumed by winning the world series. I would actually say that the giants are very similar in that regard to what um, the diamondbacks are. I can't really speak to, you know, kind of internally what it was like in the Kevin towers years uh, before that, but, from a standpoint of Tony LaRusso and Dave Stewart, their goal is to win the World Series. And the goal is to win the World Series every year and to put a team on the field that has a legitimate chance to win the World Series. And that's the overriding goal for the organization. Now, what's really fascinating about it, and this is the thing that I really respect, is it, it, I, you know, every player wants to win, right? Like every kid wants to win playing ping pong, right? Sure, right. Not, every play, not every kid wants to compete. You know, like go through the, the, the <laughs> whole process of sure. trying to win at a game of ping pong. And what this, this organization really values is that competition and players, people who really want to compete. And I think that, that to me, that's the thing that is the most interesting about the Diamondbacks is that they've put that first and foremost as their kind of most important thing is that they want to compete. Every single day, they want guys who want to compete. And if you go out there and you, I know it's cliche, but you lay it all on the line, let the chips fall where they may, you're going to come out ahead more times than not. I think they have enough talent to do that. And I do like the mentality of it. And I think it is a little bit different. It's a little bit old school in that regard, but I don't necessarily think it's bad. Not every team needs to be the same. You know, we can, we can have lots of different ones and it gives, you know, gives people plenty of things to write about, certainly, and you can look at it from the more analytic bent and not necessarily like it. But, you know, I think there's a lot of things that the Giants have done that necessarily haven't been written from the, the most analytic bent. I seem to remember one prominent writer calling Brian Sabian, the, quote, the dumbest general manager in baseball, and yet he's got three rings. <laughs> you know? right, and, then, right. and in the end, that's the goal. Yeah. But, you know, Tony La Russa, I'll get into it this way, Tony La Russa was on an A's teams that were essentially, I guess what I'm getting at is the Diamondbacks used to be sort of like we play the game the right way, and that is we'll chew a bucket of glass and we'll do whatever we need to do. And this conversation that's floating around, thanks to Bryce Harper's comments about maybe loosening up when we play, and I wonder if the Diamondbacks, as they become more successful, 
might loosen up, at least perception-wise, loosen up a little bit. They certainly got those flaring uniforms indicating some sort of fun, fun, aggressive fun. So I guess what I'm saying is, Mike, I hope you have a fun year in Arizona, too. Well, thanks. I mean, it's listen, I mean, David Peralta's the freight train, and he's doing the, you know, the kind of mixing the, the, the arms and getting the freight train going on the bases. I think there's plenty of fun with this group. And you know, listen, Zach Grinke is play extremely, hard and they run. Yeah. And Zach Grinke is extremely quotable. I mean, my God, if, if people can't find him to be entertaining, there's something wrong with them. Um, <laughs> definitely some great exactly. characters there. Uh, and Mike, appreciate you stopping by and uh, good luck. Enjoy the pizza. And uh, we will see you around. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, and that's pretty much the show. So thanks for listening. No, we, this is great. It was great having you, Ruben, and I uh, hope you come back. Yeah, and, uh, I would. Do, uh, do you have anything you want to plug for the audience? Um, well, I write for this site called McCovey Chronicles. No, I have nothing I want to plug. Great content every day. Uh, you're on Twitter. How can people find you? Yes, I am on Twitter at Lies and Perfidy, uh, P-E-R-F-I-D-Y, um, where you can find lots of great tweets about, uh, honestly, baseball and Game of Thrones and some other stuff, too. Um, and the Warriors from time to time. And the Warriors, a lot of basketball stuff right now, because is like the greatest team ever right now possibly going to end as the greatest team ever, and I feel like that's worth talking about. You know they're great because not great players are saying that they're bad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's when you know something's great. That, that's I, Someone pointed out that, like, whatever, you know, they're asking, like, okay, Ron Hart, like, members of the 95-96 Bulls, they're asking Oscar Robertson. But when, like, they're going out of their way to find, who was it, Cedric Sabalos, I think? Like, who <laughs> was, like, a backup or a, 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 you know, rotation guy on the Suns? Like, he has an opinion? Then you know this is a great team because they're just getting anyone. Yeah. Yeah. He asked Wayman Tisdale what he thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's that's my Twitter. Lots lots more content like that. All right. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, Grant Brisby, you might know him from the McCovey Chronicles website. Um, he'll be back next week. And uh, thanks again to our guest, Mike Farron from SiriusXM. And I do want to sign off with one thing that I had forgotten until this point. Uh, a shout out to um, the site's one of the site's best contributors in its history, uh, Lars the Wonder. Um, just wanted to say, glad you're okay. He uh, had a heart attack uh, this past Sunday, and we're glad that he's out and doing better. And I know he doesn't listen, but if he for some reason is, just just so you know, man, we're all propelling wildly for you. So. Uh, other great Twitter follow, by the way. If you yes. like science and space, if you are into space exploration, follow at Lars the Wonder. At Lars the Wonder, and like legitimately actual outer space in the year 2016. He's great at that, and he's very receptive to your questions. It'll help you. If you want to know how we're going to go to Mars, he can tell you all about it, and it will lead you to where you need to be. Um, so thanks again for listening. Bye.